0: Because of the incredible concentration of power in a single individual, right now we're sort of going through a period where it's pretty obvious, at least this is what it feels like to me, that our government is like a car hurtling down the road on a road that has no guardrails and no lane dividers.
1: Hello, welcome to the Clubcast. I'm Alex Nitkin. I'll be your host this week. You may have heard that a big name in Chicago government had his last day in public office this past Friday. That name is Joe Ferguson, who stepped down after 12 years as the inspector general for the city of Chicago, a position that gave him a front row seat to the waste, fraud, abuse, mismanagement, and corruption that that office is tasked with investigating and shining a spotlight on. You can consider what you're about to hear as a kind of final debrief on what Ferguson has witnessed throughout his time in that role and where that all leaves us today. And he does not hold back. He was really generous with his time on his second to last day in office. He sat down with me for more than an hour. And we covered a wide range of topics. He talked about all the ways he thinks the city council is failing in its role of providing effective government oversight. He talked about ongoing issues with the Chicago Police Department's gang database and its handling of the 2019 Anjanet Young raid. He gave an early look at some new revelations about Hilko's botched smokestack demolition last year. He talked about why he thinks the police department is not properly set up to enact federally mandated reforms. And he offered a stark assessment of Mayor Lori Lightfoot's record so far on seeing those reforms through. Finally, he spent some time talking about where he's headed next, and right at the end, he talks about some fundamental problems he has found with Chicago's governance structure that he says are holding the city back in big ways. So buckle up, get comfortable, because if you have any interest in Chicago government or politics, you are going to want to hear every word of my interview with now former Inspector General Joe Ferguson. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure this has been a pretty busy week for you, so I appreciate you making the time.
0: Um, appreciate you having me, and yeah, it might be the busiest week of my entire tenure.
1: Wow, which is 12 years. Yep. So, I'm talking to you now on Thursday morning, um, and at the rate that your office has been pumping out all these reports, we'll probably see a lot more by the time this comes out on Monday, including the, the quarterly report that you're working on that is going to summarize investigations from July to September for now the latest i think big finding to come out of your office came out yesterday it has to do with city council committee chairs um your team found that some of these aldermen are using their committee staff for ward level work and apparently the response from a lot of them was to kind of shrug and say we we don't really want to do anything about that you know i can imagine that they might look at that and say well what's the big deal these are government workers they're doing government work so i'd like you to elaborate a little bit on why is this an issue that you know, average taxpayers, residents should care about?
0: Um, good and important question. Obviously, we thought so, and that's why we looked at this in the first instance. And it is, uh, by the way, the first full-blown audit of a city council operation. Um, and in the coming year for the annual plan- uh, First ever? Uh, the first ever, yeah, of, of an actual sort of programmatic function of, of, of the council. Um, And next year's plan, we'll look at um, the Council Office of Financial Analysis, COFA, um, as a discrete matter. This um, was looking at committee expenditures, um, sort of a kind of a traditional audit. Um, uh, How well are they tracking and how are they record keeping and that sort of stuff? And are they expending the money for the stated purpose? And that expending money for the stated purpose, budgets need to be understood actually as legislation. It's a law right? And um, each appropriation line um, constitutes a pledged, dedicated, approved utilization purpose for what has been appropriated. And when we're talking about personnel in the city, it, it breaks down at multiple levels. It breaks down at the level of the individual position, but also the purpose or the title of the position and what it's supposed to be applied to. And there's a little bit of um, legalistic, Um, wrangling and back and forth over how strict um, a constraint that is. But in the broad brush, what we're talking about here are folks who are appropriated under the law to work specifically for committees of the city council, not doing committee work, but instead working for the individual chairperson with respect to the administration of constituent services in the chairperson's ward. What that means, so you're right, on the one hand, it's just like, well, taxpayer dollars, paying for city workers, doing some form of city work, right? Great. Here's the problem, is it means the committee work isn't being done. The purpose for which they're supposedly working and approved under the law to work, that work is actually being neglected. Um, And as, 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 as I think you and those who follow your good work know, the city council has lots of committees, 19 committees, which is an extraordinary number of committees, and uh, the majority of them do next to nothing. And so then the question, the question becomes, well, isn't the appropriation designed to actually assure that those committees do something? And the way the committees work generally in legislative bodies is that each committee is a whole council, a whole legislative body resource. Um, that develops subject matter expertise in the specific subject matter field of the committee that all of the members can go to, and that when issues arise or when proposals for legislation come from the executive branch, from the office of the mayor that go to that committee, there are people who are expert in the field who actually can pull it apart, ask the right questions. So that's the front end. And then the back end is have the subject matter expertise, to call the department heads in to talk about how things are going to engage in legislative oversight. If you do not have staff actually doing that work and amassing that subject matter expertise, you literally have no functioning committee structure, which means there's no legislative oversight, which means there's no critical analysis or the critical tension that's necessary from the legislature to make any proposal that comes from the administration actually something that is sort of driven to its highest and best and most accountable form. So we're losing a fundamental function of city government by the diversion of committee staff to these individualized purposes uh, at at the constituent
1: level. I wanna broaden that out based on what you said about how there are so many committees and most of them do next to nothing as you put it. What issue does that, what ramifications does that in itself carry for the functioning of city government and what you know can be done about that
0: um i i mentioned uh, sort of the back and forth there there's, there's there's a tension that should exist between the legislature and the executive branch both at the front end with the policy making and in the back end with respect to accountability we don't have that tension which means what we devise at the front end um, hasn't been closely scrutinized such that their performance metrics that we are all committed to, that it's been properly scored so that we know what it's going to cost, um, so that it's on specific kind of um, uh, milestone time markers to say, okay, we're going to get to here by then, and then we'll examine things. Um, so it means what we're left with is a system in which everything is largely handed down from Olympus um, by the mayor. On the fifth floor meaning the fifth floor. And that's it. And I don't know, I'm a little older than you and been around a little bit longer. Um, I haven't encountered a system that works well or works well for very long when everything's decided by one person without any sort of critical engagement around what that person is saying we should be doing.
1: So in a press release accompanying this report yesterday, you wrote, quote, some of council's committees and chairs do reasonably well in following, you know, these rules that you're talking about, while others follow anachronistic practices and maintain a culture reminiscent of the city's colorful but less than noble past. Um, I would like you to expand upon that a little bit and, and, I mean, name some names. Which committees were the worst offenders on this?
0: So um, the major committees, um, the ones that are the ones that we would all agree are major committees, budget, finance, um, uh, those are the ones that actually are, are doing it right, at, at least doing it right in this particular term of the council. And one thing to note here is there's well, this this being a first audit of the of the city council. There's a lot of things that we're kind of working out, and going to have the office is going to have to work out with the council as to how audits are done. Why? Because aldermen tend to view themselves as in, in, in atomistic ways, while they're all a member of a single body. They don't think of the city council as a department or a unified body. There's 50 of them doing their own thing. The committees operate the exact same way, and they just sort of leave it to each other, and there's no unified standards. The anachronistic um, uh, reference to a less than noble past, up through the end of the tenure of Alderman Burke as Finance Committee Chair.
1: Until 2019.
0: Until 2019. And I I guess I should say the chairman, um, because he is the chairman among chairmen, and one of the more... Curious things um, uh, to to experience as being in a room with a bunch of chairmen, where they're all calling each other chairman, and um, it sort of it becomes comical. Um, but is if you needed additional staff, and everybody should understand the budget for aldermen, um, each of them get um, sort of the equivalent of three appropriated positions for their constituent level, ward level work, plus a budget for non-personnel expenses. And that's about equal, right? If you need, and and, and that's not enough people to actually do the work of, of, of dealing with constituent services and also helping aldermen with sort of the legislative work that they want to be doing. And again, remember here, there's no there's no meaningful committee structure around a lot of the issues. The Leg- legislative research bureau is something significantly controlled or influenced by the mayor's office, um, and so aldermen have to kind of figure out policy and do the research themselves. They've got three people to do everything. That's not enough.
1: Pausing real quick, the legislative reference bureau is this office that is run by President Pro Tempore Alderman Brendan Riley and is there to help aldermen, you know, understand what new legislation is, write new legislation. But you're saying that they are not using that to the fullest, or it's not being employed to to the fullest.
0: It's not employed to the fullest. Um, it is. It is historically. It is. It tends to be controlled by the most powerful people in the council, who tend to be most powerful people in the council because they have allied themselves with the mayor, who have appointed them to those power positions, and um, therefore ultimately the legislative research bureau doesn't do its work um, uh, separate and apart from. The executive branch, everything that's going on there is known by the executive branch, right? And in some ways, maybe influenced, slowed, sped up, whatever, um, differentially sort of applied um, by the influence of intergovernmental affairs and, 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 and the mayor's office. It's not independent in the way that it should be serving the council as a whole the way that it should be. It's also under-resourced generally. So aldermen quite often have to figure everything out themselves. They've got three people to do that, at least as an appropriated matter there traditionally were maybe four places you could go to get additional staff which they all need in some measure Um, one is to draw from your non-personnel budget side and um that's perfectly allowable uh but it means that you have less money to do things like pay the rent for your ward office and people should understand aldermen have to sign their own leases those are city sites but the aldermen are on the hook for them and they have to provide for the insurance for them if somebody slips and falls they got to do everything themselves which is a strange way of operating but they could draw from the non-personnel side they can go but that only goes so far they can draw from their campaign finance money but n- no great uh, observation here that wildly varies from ward to ward if you're in a ward in a traditionally disadvantaged uh, community where there is no major development going on you do not have much money in your campaign coffers to draw from. If you are in a downtown ward where there's lots of development money and lots of big business interests, you probably have coffers to actually staff up a professional office in meaningful measure, right? So that's the second place that you might go. The third place you might go up till fairly recent times was the Finance Committee where um, there was a massive amount of the committee staff actually was assigned to the Finance Committee. And you would have to go on bended knee to the chairman saying, I would like, you know, uh, some additional help. The implication is, is that if you're getting help from the chairman, when the chairman needs your help, um, you will have uh, you will help the chairman with some vote or, you know, uh, legislative uh, assistance of some sort. And um, and the person that would be sent to you would, would be somebody that the chairman would be sending to you. It's not like here's some money, hire the person that you want to work with. And so there's kind of somebody on the inside that allows the chairman to actually follow what's going on in your ward office and so on and so forth. The fourth place was to become a committee chair. And for that, you'd sort of have to be in the good graces of the mayor. And um, you would get a committee budget with these committee positions and, um, the law the law from our perspective is it's got to be used for committee purposes but traditionally a lot of the committee chairs simply use them for ward constituent purposes and frankly, many of them told us the mayor's office said we, this was OK to do. And um, and that's how the city council operates is no one has enough resources. Um, and then the places that you have to go to get the resources um, that you need either make you beholden to um, people who are donating to your campaign so that you have bigger campaign um, uh, funds to draw from or beholden to some other power actor in the city council. And those dynamics are really old school. They're sort of tied to sort of the patronage machine practices of our past, which we all know have some pretty major downsides, um, even when they're they're operating on the right side of the law.
1: So whose responsibility does it fall upon to make sure that each alderman and each staff is properly resourced? Is it the mayor's budget office and the next budget just to assign a line item and enough staff to make sure, or who, who owns that?
0: Fantastic question. Um, one would think that the, that the city council and the aldermen themselves, having as one of their main functions to actually vote on and approve budgets, would have a little bit of say in, in how much money is being allocated to it, and in the context of, of, of the dialogue um, on this committee expenditure audit, I personally asked the question of some of the leading chairs in the city council, well, who is it that decides your budget? And I, I know this to be the answer. I was just shocked at how unrestrained the answer was, which is, well, the mayor decides that. So the mayor decides the scope of the council and the resources of the council and controls the operation of the council.
1: So like I said, you've been in this role now 12 years. Since then, the reach and the jurisdiction of the Inspector General's office has widened in, in a couple ways, including to actually gain oversight of the city council and ethics and lobbying violations. Clearly, there are still issues to be dealt with in terms of organization and structure from what you're describing. What kind of improvement have you seen in the past Uh, what is it, seven or eight years since that jurisdiction has been widened in that way, that that you, can you make that connection um, that makes you think that, you know the council has moved on from the the sort of bad old days of patronage and graft and corruption in some ways
0: so look chicago chicago and culture there's a culture let culture is the last thing to ever change so to say that the bad old days are over i would absolutely not go there uh and it's also the case and I, and that's not being pejorative of of the city council or chicago because the fact of the matter is is where money and power converge, there are always going to be some ethics issues. But what we have is a heck of a lot more transparency um, around what is going on so that people can uh, actually assess for themselves um, whether um, uh, what's going on is calibrated in the right measure. I've, I've long said the ama- one of the amazing things about Chicago is not what goes on that's illegal because that goes on everywhere. It's what goes on is perfectly legal. And our, um, our, our ethics um, and sort of uh, regulatory um, uh, standards for campaign finance and for, you know, until recently what aldermen can do besides being alderman, uh, there are so many things that are perfectly legal because they're not prescribed under the law that we all look at and say, that's not right. It means our values are, are not in alignment with our legal system. And I think more of that is out there for people to see. And, and then as for the battle days part of things, correlation uh, is not causation, but correlation is causation in this particular instance. There are three aldermen under indictment who have come under indictment during the period of time that the inspector general's office has had investigative oversight of the city council. That is not a coincidence, and of course there are other instances in the news these days of you know one or more other aldermen being under some form of investigation. We work with the FBI, we work with the IRS, we work with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Those are coordinate, collaborative um, uh, investigative um, relationships, and and there are results that, that 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 are coming from them.
1: So alderman responded to your your latest report we're talking about on committee work by essentially saying they don't want to change anything. Like you said. You said at your city council budget hearing last week that a lot of recent IG reports and audits have been met with a response from city departments that's not much better than that, which is to say, yes, you're totally right, we're going to fix this, and then they just would, would do nothing?
0: Yeah, we're seeing that a fair amount.
1: Your office puts out reports, you know, we should clarify in such a wide array of city functions, including a lot of stuff we don't really think about day to day, things like police record keeping and traffic light configuration and you know weed removal on vacant lots. So, you know, again, I wanna ask you to, to name some names on that. Which are the issues that have especially, you know, been a cause for concern because they are just not improving responding to these recommendations. Um, and sort of lay out the, the stakes for us on why that matters.
0: So um, I, I think with some of the conversation focused in the budget hearing was um, on the police department, um, and I'm just going to go there because that's that's actually the flavor of the month, year, decade, um, and uh, years to come. It can't be the case that you say we completely agree that our gang database, which is grossly, inequitably inaccurate in both. Um, fact and in application um, is something that we're going to fix, and then two and a half years later, not having fixed it. You can't have a situation, and I actually have a lot of regard for the, uh, for the, the commissioner of, of DHR, the Department of Human Resources, and someone who previously worked with the IG's office. This um, is
1: Christopher Owen.
0: Chris Owen. Chris is a, a terrific public servant. And we put out an audit that said, hey, look, DHR, under the law, you're actually responsible for assuring that departments um, have um, meaningful, rigorous baseline um, performance evaluation systems in place, which the response was, yeah, we, we really, we just can't do that. And we've said, yeah, but the law says it's your responsibility. Well, it's, you know, it's a year gone and... Um, It's like, yeah, okay, we'll try to lean into it. Nothing really has moved in that regard. Uh, The audit that we did that was part of a sort of a a two-part audit around um, uh, streets and sand citations, um, vacant, and specifically overgrown vacant lots, which is a matter of great frustration for West and Southside Aldermen. In which we identified a number of things on the Streets and Sand side, which they said they would get to. They got to about half of them. And then another bunch on the Law Department side, from which the Law Department has just said, nope, not going to do them. We recognize what you're saying, not going to do them. And we follow up, and there's sort of greater recognition of the possibility of doing something, but still not going to do them.
1: I'm trying to remember this. That related to following through on, on ticketing?
0: Yeah, exactly. Streets and Sand writes up writes up the ticket. Um, Parts on the on the streets and sand side part of the problem was a lot of the tickets they were writing up were for vacant lots that actually were owned by the city and the city did not give streets and sand a a registry of vacant lots and so we're writing up tickets um, that, that the system wasn't set up for streets and sand to say okay this particular location is owned by this person because they're not connected up to um, uh, uh, the the county recorder of deeds uh, uh, system, which they could be. And so somebody's got to then research all of these citations before they get sent to the property owner. The law department's responsible for that. The law department is like months and months behind. And so people get citations a year after they've been issued, which is just unfair as a matter of due process. It's a matter of fair administration of regulatory systems. And as a matter of efficacy, because what we're looking to do with those citations is get people to cut their their lots, right? And a lot of, a lot of departments are like, no, we're doing fine. It, it, as we issue the reports, it's one by one by one by one. But over time, you realize, geez, there's a pattern and trend to what's going on here that we haven't quite seen in some years. During the Emanuel administration, lots and lots of pushback. And a lot of times the pushback would be, that's going to cost us money. We just can't do it the way that you're saying, but we'll look at it and we'll try to figure it out. Right now, we're getting either, nope, not a problem, or yep, we'll do something about it and then not do anything about it.
1: It was mentioned in your budget hearing that there is a limit eventually on these recommendations that your office is issuing, because at the end of the day, there are recommendations. Should there be some greater consequence for not putting them Through Should should there be some kind of legally binding repercussion?
0: Um, No, Um, because at the end of the day, um, the IG function, notwithstanding all of the really smart people who work here and are trying to help the government get it right, um, uh, we don't do the operations. There's always things to be considered contextually, institutionally and operationally. That aren't part of what we've looked at and so you have to leave it to the department to people who actually are the experts in the administration and delivery of services themselves to sort of make those decisions it, what you're raising um, uh, has sort of a a softer middle ground which is not necessarily a requirement that they do what the ig says but that there be some accountability for the decision to say not doing it and greater accountability for when they say we're going to do something and nothing is done And in most systems with IGs, the primary customer of the work is the legislative body. Why? Because the legislative body picks up the report, holds a hearing on the report, brings in the department heads to have a discussion about why they're not doing something about it, and then equally important, what might be needed, what the council itself can help provide to help get that thing done, we don't have effective legislative oversight. A missing leg of the overall accountability stool, if you will, is missing here. And that's that's where the accountability really need, can be improved and needs to be improved. And at that point, you're having public debates about what can and can't be done, what our priorities are. And then that sort of renders it kind of a political issue for which there's political accountability behind all of that. We don't have those dynamics fully connected up right now.
1: This is an issue that you raised in your budget hearing that these reports are coming out and maybe in years past it would be more common for, like you're saying, committee chairs to bring these departments into the public eye and say, what are you doing about it? And that's just dropping off
0: so uh, actually um, it's a it's a relatively recent phenomenon that there are committee hearings on IG reports it was only about three years ago that they began to occur what we've noticed and and we see we see sort of the complication of the times and what COVID has done to sort of limit limit um, uh, the people's sort of ability to uh, to act and be proactive on some things but notwithstanding that the committee the committee action on our reports after an initial big healthy push from Alderman Michelle Smith, most particularly.
1: Chair of the Ethics and Government Oversight Committee.
0: Yeah. It has tailed off. And on the public safety front, it just never has gotten out of the gate. Even in situations where the municipal code requires hearings, they just don't get held for months to years.
1: That the public safety committee is not, and Chairman Chris Teleferro not hosting those committees. Yep. I remember there was a public safety committee meeting in July to actually talk about the gang database. Um, I think at that point, police leaders said that they were trying to get this new successor system, the criminal enterprise information system, up and running by September. Here we are, it's October. The timeline is still a little bit unclear. There was another public safety committee meeting just yesterday where we heard a lot of frustration from aldermen saying, We don't know anything still about what this new database is going to look like. And here Still, the old database is in operation and all of these problems have been exposed. My question to you is, what questions should the city council and what questions should the public be asking of the police department about this new system or database as it's being developed?
0: Um, uh, In the broadest brush, what are the inputs, what are the outputs, and what are the internal auditing uh, and accountability mechanisms that you have in place um, to check your work to make sure that they're accurate? And then finally, um, uh, how much of this is transparent? And then not finally, one more thing additionally, is what sort of process there is for people who feel like they've been wrongly placed on this list. Now, the wrong placement, You know, we're sort of edging into a a system where the police board will be a a place of recourse for you to be able to challenge.
1: And this is the ordinance that advanced out of committee yesterday and is presumably being passed to city council today to have the police board create that process to let people take themselves off the...
0: Right. Uh, but um, we don't know what the inputs are. And on the input front, who gets to put in the information? Um, how are they trained? Because we're talking about desi- basically we're talking about a label that's put on a person as um, gang affiliated. What are the criteria? What are the basis? What, um, uh, who is qualified to actually make those sorts of um, entries or inputs into the system? What are the checks and balances? What are the approval chains for actually that that being finalized and entered into? How long um, does that designation last? What sorts of continuing conduct um, must be found and entered into in an accountable, uh, accurate fashion to maintain that designation um, over a period of time or otherwise have it simply lapse? How do we make sure that when it's lapsed, the person actually drops out of the system so that it it doesn't come up when the name is run? Um, All these sorts of things. And then, you know, what sorts of internal checks are there on the system that's created itself to say that the system, as it receives this sort of approved criteria-based, standard-based checked um, process for inputting that it actually as it sits in the system is itself accurate. And therefore the system is being pinged in a reliable fashion. And then the next question is who gets to ping the system? What sorts of actions can be taken on the basis of the pinging of the system? Do individuals get noticed that they've been put into the system? Is there a right of appeal that is not too high a barrier to actually bring an appeal? Um, does the individual get the underlying information to even know how what they have, to, what they're fighting. Um, you know, in the first iteration of response, we were told that knowing full well that the vast majority of, 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 of initial placements occur with young black and brown males between the ages of about 16 to 21, right? Many of them still school age. Um, the, the department's first response is, yep, we're gonna let people know. First of all, we're not gonna tell people they're on the list, but when they think they are on the list, they can go file an appeal by going to headquarters between the hours of 8 a.m. and 12 p.m., Monday through Friday. In other words, when school is in session.
1: This was their response to the most reported. Fir- no, no, it was the very first. It
0: was it was the very first one, and the one that actually the mayor, uh, as a candidate, and uh, and as mayor elect, said no, 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 no. We we that's not going to be good enough but here we are two and a half years later and we still don't have the new system stood up. So I could could go on and on all the way through the process, but these are all things that the council needs to actually be able to dig into. And one of the great problems that we have in this city, again, tied to sort of legislative oversight and efficacy that is a driver of not only good policy, but effective implementation of policy Is the legislative actors having access to information in a timely fashion to be able to formulate the questions, um, to get answers to the questions? And right now, you know, they don't get answers to most of the questions. They get the courtesy of high-level briefings, like just before something's being introduced to council, And then when hearings are held, most of the answers to questions, especially in the public safety, the policing realm, is... That sensitive information. We're not able to share it with you or it'll be slow rolled.
1: So a lot of the stuff that you're talking about is pretty in the weeds. And obviously it's, it's important, but things like when and how people will be notified the nuts and bolts of how it will work. I mean, talk about the stakes of getting this wrong. I mean, what happens when those things are not thought out?
0: So first off, if if it's not all thought out and and closely scrutinized and closely monitored, uh, it's another bad system. It's another bad system that the government says is going to fix everything, and it's a reform and it's an advancement, and in fact it's not. And that just adds to the doubt, the question, the the the, the, the uh, about legitimacy and honesty and integrity and effectiveness of government, which is just a true problem, not just in the city, but in the United States generally. We don't trust government. We're not in a trust-but-verify environment. We're in a verify-then-trust environment. And so the verify actually requires people get the information first and be able to closely scrutinize it. But when the system doesn't work and it has the impact on lives that it does, it just is a further weight on, on the department's challenge, the CPD's challenge and the criminal justice system's challenge in attaining any sort of legitimacy with the public that they're supposed to be serving. That legitimacy and lack of legitimacy is really, really important for a number of reasons, one of which is we can't actually effectively combat the pernicious, violent crime problem we have without a cooperative, trusting relationship between the police department and the people it serves. And if that isn't there, The public is wary of the police, sees the police as an occupier, doesn't cooperate with the police, and it's the members of the community that actually have that greater nuanced information about who may be involved in violent crime, if you will. So it affects everything along the way, but it all goes back to this issue of legitimacy, and if not trust, at least confidence in the notion that government is trying to do things the best way it is capable of.
1: This is an issue that you articulated also in regard to the discussions that were happening in the city council this past spring about an ordinance that uh, your office has, has supported or been involved with that would order the inspector general's office to compile a database, a publicly searchable database of closed police misconduct complaints. I'm trying to remember basically where it left off. There was a disagreement between your office and the mayor's office. The mayor's office um, had been opposed and then they got behind a version that was narrower. You said, no, that's not going to cut it. Can you just bring us up to date on where that stands now and why that is an important part of this conversation too?
0: Again, uh, this is a transparency issue. Uh, The Inspector General's office, IGChicago.org, click on information portal and you can go to criminal the, sorry, the, the complaint register history of active officers going back to 2007, this would have simply taken it back further in time with more enriched information, information enriched by actual reports that typically are produced in FOIA pursuant to FOIA requests, right? And so a couple of things, every time a FOIA request, request yields a production, that is essentially an acknowledgement that this is public information that's been handed off to a member of the public one member of the public. Why not just make it public then? Because it's the it's acknowledged the public's information. Post it. Connect it up to you know sort of the the framework of that already exists with respect to the high level information on complete register history of an officer. Here's the details, but it means that somebody else isn't going to have to file a FOIA request in the future, and that the city isn't going to have to do a new FOIA search for. For, for documents, and new redaction and so on and so forth. We already do this. Let's just bring it out there. So just be done with it once and for all. Let's go back further in time. And one of the things about sort of the scope of this thing was civil society. Jamie Calvin, the Invisible Institute, um, uh, the plaintiff in the green litigation was seeking to go back for like 47, 48 years where there are still records that exist. A lot of that has historically meaningful value to academic researchers and journalists. But in terms of the operation of government, we really only need to go back 20 to 25 years because that's about 95% of the existing police department, right? That's what people need to know. And then going forward in time, you just maintain that record and you just bring it forward continuously in time. The big dispute was frankly a really really disingenuous claim that this was too expensive this all cost the city tens of millions of dollars and and an absolutely incalculable lack of legitimacy that comes from its non-transparency
1: tens of millions of dollars in legal settlements
0: you're legal settlements litigation fees, and then the value of of damage to reputation as the city appears to be hiding the ball and having and people having to fight in court just for access to information that's ultimately deemed to be properly public. And so let's just have it once and for all. So tens of millions of dollars in a stream endlessly into the future with all sorts of devotions of city resources to actually kind of maintain this status quo. It just kind of goes away. And what is the argument that we got back the $700,000 that you guys said would be necessary in the first year in order to stand this thing up, after which maintenance costs can largely be internalized within the inspector general's office's existing statutorily protected budget, that's $700,000, too much money. that That's like pocket change relative to the bleed out of, of money in this entire realm and again, that's not even calculating the incalculable cost of loss of legitimacy. That was really, really a specious claim. And they said, okay, so we've got to send it to an independent analysis just because there's no way it could cost this little. And the independent analysis was done and it cost to the penny exactly what we said it was gonna cost. And, th- and it was confirmed that the rest of it would in fact be internalized and was internalizable by the inspector general's office. We lost a massive opportunity for legitimacy that came from a proposal that was actually negotiated between Alderman Wagesback and civil society. Jamie Calvin and the Invisible Institute working with the IG's office, both sides, to do something where instead of this being kind of this binary, either it's a battle from from the public for information uh, and eventually getting it. Um, Or the city expending massive amounts of dollars to resist all of that is just like, no, let's all get this together because sooner or later it's going to be out there and the city should actually have the agency of leading the way on this. Why? Because then the public sees the city being transparent and actually that's a critically important thing to the building of legitimacy.
1: One other specific police issue that your office has been working on is an investigation into the February 2019 raid on Anjanette Young's home. This inspired a lot of recriminations and questions um, and and reforms about police warrant executions, including reports that, that your office has issued. The Inspector General's office is set to send its full report on that specific instance to the mayor's office, or has it already sent it, or can you catch us up on what the Inspector General's Office has been doing on that and what we should expect to see on it?
0: So there's there's been a lot of purposeful obfuscation about what's really going on here. Um, so I just want to set the table. By whom? By the administration. You mentioned an investigation. Um, there is both an audit of search warrant practices that has already yielded two interim reports of recommendations of things that need to be um, uh, considered and done with respect to the search warrant process with a final report that's sort of the big picture report projected for around the turn of the year. That's an audit out of the public safety section. And this is a massive problem. And um, midstream, as we entered into the audit, the city changed all the policies, uh, the search warrant policies, which were subsequently sort of civil society, led the legislate, legislators um, and um, uh, experts in the field said, um, nice first try, um, not sufficient. And the city said, well, yeah, obviously, we're gonna have to sort of do a second generation of this, right? But for purposes of an audit, then you suddenly find yourself um, auditing something that has been changed midstream. And then the question is, okay, how do, how do we then hit reset on this? So we hit the reset, we're continuing, We're gonna, we're gonna issue a final report. Um, not we, they, my friends, the people that I work with, I won't be there anymore, probably at the turn of the year. That's the audit. And that's sort of programmatic, systemic, How, what goes on, what has gone on, what do we do to make sure that these sorts of things don't happen in the future? The investigation is actually a formal investigative inquiry rather than an audit inquiry of what happened in the aftermath of the execution of that warrant and gets into um, um, all sorts of areas it's like, okay, how is this investigated? When was the investigation initiated? Was that was that um, in accord with um, some legal obligations and standards like the consent decree, for example, the FOIA requests that were filed, were those actually handled in, in a regulatorily appropriate manner? The litigation um, that involved the law department um, uh, uh, and presumably you know, um, in consultation with some members of the mayor's office. Was that handled in an appropriate fashion? And against all of that, we have a victim. We have a person who is victimized in the national media, not only by the horrific nature of what she was subjected to in the search itself, but by the fact of it becoming broad knowledge. It's it's humiliating. How did we treat that victim in all of these contexts? Because it wasn't just the media that filed the FOIA request. For body-worn camera footage, the victim herself filed a request for the footage with respect to the search of her own apartment in which she was made to stand naked, her own body. She is not given the the body-worn camera um, footage for what was her own victimization. How did that all play? And was that done in accordance with regulatory requirements and obligations and standards?
1: These are questions that this report is going to aim to answer and we should expect to see that when?
0: Um, The report goes to the mayor's office. um, uh, Tomorrow's my last day, 5 PM. We're pushing it out the door um, by 5 PM and then the mayor's office, the administration, and everybody involved um will have um uh, under the law 30 days extendable to 60 days to respond. So or response should be in hand by mid-december and there will be a public version of this thing um, because obviously there are a lot of details that are specific to sort of investigative outcomes there will be a long public version and accounting of this thing um uh, after the after the response is
1: received we'll definitely be watching for that i understand that the IG's office is also working on an investigation or is about to release an investigation of Hillco Redevelopment Group's demolition of the old Crawford power plant, the smokestack, that fell last April and drew up a big cloud of dust that covered it a lot of a lot of homes in Little Village. Um, I remember, you know, shortly after this happened, the mayor called for the IG's office to to look into it. Um, where does that stand now?
0: Actually, my recollection is the mayor's office um, said um, they don't need a report from the IG to say to tell the story about what obviously went wrong here. Uh, but um, there were calls for us to do it. And of course, we were going to do it anyway. So we've done it. It's with the mayor's office. We sent it to the mayor's office a couple of weeks ago. It again is there's, an out, there's, there's outcomes in which there are disciplinary findings and recommendations, disciplinary actions be taken against um, certain officials who had responsibilities that we do not believe were um, uh, complied with. But the greater story um, in the HILCO um, matter is sort of the failing of government systems, multiple agencies that did not work in coordinate fashion and multiple agencies each sort of following kind of a narrow granular sort of perspective on what their responsibilities are, when all of them should be pursuing their specific responsibilities and stated mission requirements from the perspective of the larger public interest. And so it's government looking down rather than government looking up. And the result was all of these separate agencies, uh, departments that had some role in all of this, they in some measure uh, executed their responsibilities, but in the aggregate completely missed the greater um, um, responsibility that needed to be met. There were a couple of departments with greater responsibility for that. The Department of Buildings, the Department of Public Health, there are officials in both in which we make critical findings up to them as to their their performance of duties, but also tell the story of sort of the larger failure of government systems.
1: So this was delivered to the mayor's office a few weeks ago, so then we should expect to see it pretty soon, right? Yep, absolutely. You've talked a lot about Mayor Lightfoot and her administration. I want to wrap this all up by asking a question that I've been really eager to ask, you know, Joe Ferguson, the private citizen, and that is, what is your level of confidence right now? in this mayor to see through reforms to the Chicago Police Department, to restore this critical public trust in CPD, and really to you know restore public trust in, in government and the city council after that was such a central part of her campaign?
0: I, I'm going to try to sort of split the atom. Um, I'm still the IG at the moment that we're talking. Um, I am not private citizen, uh, completely private citizen, but I'm a resident of this city. And I'll split the atom by saying this. On the basis of the record to date, there is not reason for great confidence in any of that, and that's especially with respect to the Chicago Police Department. The Monitor issued the latest report um, and uh, sort of the, the every six month reporting cycle. The city, is, the, the city and the, the, the police department is still lagging far behind on um, the timetable for compliance with elements of of the consent decree. And um, I'll take the opportunity to note something that is buried in the report um, and not spoken of, although it should be a point of pride for the city itself. There is one part of city government that has now been found to be in full compliance with the consent decree. That's a big deal. It means that maybe there's a prospect that we will eventually all get there. It's the inspector general's office, the public safety function of the inspector general's office. No one's talking about that. There's a reason why we're a small part of all of this, but it's a big deal. It can be done. You can get there. But the only way to get there is through leadership and will. And right now, the Chicago Police Department, I I, I know this mayor is all over what's going on in the Chicago Police Department and is is quite certainly probably anguished by a lot of a lot and frustrated by a lot of um, of what goes on and the slow pace of movement. But um, a a, a simple metric that I've used for some years um, at the height of the consent decree reform of the Los Angeles Police Department, Los Angeles. Police Department had a permanent staff of 300 people devoted simply to implementation and measurement of efficacy of reform of the department overall, and putting in place the mechanisms for continuous improvement, even as those things were stood up. Compar- comparatively speaking, the Chicago Police Department, probably around 20 people. And we have a greater challenge in Chicago than they had in Los Angeles. We're bigger and were also bureaucratically mediocre. Los Angeles, for all of its cultural problems and its scandals that prompted uh, the consent decree, it actually was much more administratively competent and was sort of able to get into this slipstream under Charlie Beck, who we were graced to have here standing um, as our interim um, superintendent, um, who started to put in place the very structures that succeeded in Los Angeles only to have them immediately, and I mean immediately, dismantled when he left and the current superintendent took over. I don't see the structure of the police department having been set up to achieve the reforms that we are mandated to achieve in a meaningfully effective and expeditious way. And that's why I say on the basis of the record to date, there isn't reason for confidence. But I will tell you, we have a mayor that knows what needs to be done. And for that reason alone, there is a basis to maintain hope. But right now on the basis of the existing record, I don't have high confidence.
1: I wanna rewind for a quick second on what you said about Charlie Beck, because I remember that Superintendent David Brown, the current superintendent said in a hearing a couple months ago that the process of aligning the department with the consent decree didn't really start until after David Brown got there. You're saying it sounds like that he has that backwards.
0: Uh, yeah. Um, the consent decree took effect in March of 2019. That was a year before David Brown got here. And that first year is a lot about sort of setting up structures and systems for this specific, um, things that need to be implemented on this sort of long calendar. And, um, Charlie back, not only in sort of, uh, um, uh, Um, doing a reset on the operational structure of the police department for purposes of combating crime, um, also hit the restructure of the department for purposes of situating it for that long arc of reform that was ahead of it. That got undone the minute he left.
1: You know, before we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity to talk more about the one piece of good news that you brought up, in your budget hearing last week, which is more public engagement with the IG's office. Um, so, I want to give you a chance to talk about how people can can get more involved, whether it's through looking at that database that you mentioned or, or by communicating issues that they have to the office.
0: So, thank you um, for <laughs> prompting me on that. Um, uh, it's what I'm always told to do and always forget to do. Um, uh, first off, one one of the reasons, one of the reasons for that. So we have, we have an extraordinary community outreach and engagement, um, uh, operation. Um, and in the community, um, if, if you're an activist, if you are with an organization and there's something going on for which you would like to understand how it works better. It may well be the information is either on the IG's website in the form of a report. It's on the information portal. IGChicago.org slash information portal. When you go on to the homepage, you will see a gigantic icon that says information portal. And inside there, you will have four different fields, financial, um, the city's finances. There are are visualized, um, interactive, user-friendly dashboards on the city budget. And then as of Monday, TIF, Um, broken down at the TIFF level. What? what the account, what the, what the deposits on hand are of the, uh, uh, of the TIF, um, um, what the surplus is going back now four years. Um, over time, that will be built out to add sort of the revenue and the expenditure data. Um, but TIF is, a, is an area of sort of huge frustration because of its mystification. That's there. So city budget, TIF. Another one is Um, City employment data, um, where you can see at the department level, broken down by demographics of all sorts, race, ethnicity, gender, geography, um, department, union, um, position title, so on and so forth, information about the entire city workforce, Um, but the major one is public safety. And there, the newest one actually is 911 events for the for the for the fire department tied to the report that we just issued um, on fire department response times, um, but the vast majority of them having to do with the police department, the composition of the police department, the deployment at the district level, um, and then individual operational things, investigative stops, all the way down to the ward and the beat level. Um, the time of day, the time of year, so on and so forth. So you can see what's going on with respect to that in your community. Um, Tactical response reports, which are the reports that are filed every time the police department uses force. The complaint history of active officers going back to 2007, and so on and so forth. These are all on what are called Tableau um, dashboards. And you will see, you, you the user can click on and put in your ward, your district, your beat, Go look for an officer's name to find out his or her history. Right, it's all there, and um, people are starting to go there regularly because they understand it. And one of the ideas behind that um, was ultimately the only way we can all be better. And this sort of brings to mind James Madison and, and Federalist Ten. We created this incredible system of checks and balances uh, in our in our federal constitution. And Madison wrote at the end of the day, though all of this. All of this um, uh, requires one additional thing that you can't institutionalize or built into a structure, and that's civic virtue. Civic virtue defined as an engaged, informed citizenry. And Chicago needs an engaged, informed citizenry more than most cities do because its legislative body just doesn't work very well to be a check on the executive. And so we spend an enormous amount of time in this city, an enormous amount of the frustration with government is over the lack of access to information that is the people's information. And the idea behind a lot of these dashboards, aside from helping the departments themselves that don't seem to know what to do with their data and don't don't seem to know what their data actually is, but is also to help the public, give them access to what is public information in user-friendly ways that then turns the conversation about um, access to data or the fight over access to data into a, a debate about what the data means and what we're going to do about the problems that are reflected in that data. It turns the individual anecdotal experience into something where you realize I'm not alone. This is happening all over my community. It's happening all over my city. That changes the dynamics of advocacy from the community, engagement from the community, so all of this is there. And then the other side of it is, give us your feedback. Every single visualization should prompt a next generation of questions. We wanna know what those questions are to know how to refine that, that, that dashboard in the future to answer the questions in the full measure that are most meaningful to the community. Um, but then also you have suggestions, you have complaints. We need to hear about them, igchicago.org. Um, and it, and it equally applies to suggestions as it does to complaints. It doesn't need to be, I see somebody doing something bad. It's, I see something going on that just doesn't make sense to me. And it sure would be great either to understand it or to have you look at it. We need to know.
1: Very last question you have repeatedly, uh, made clear you are not retiring. You are just stepping back from this particular role at this particular time. So I have to ask, what what is next? Where do you go from here?
0: Um, uh, I don't know. Wise people told me um, I've been at this for so long. First off, that they can't believe I've done it for this long. Um, And uh, I should step back um, and sort of not take measure so much as just sort of recover and recover a sense of who the hell I am right now. And another thing is I can't actually look for a job while I'm IG um, because somebody that you're talking to on the face of it, maybe they don't have interests or business with the city, but somebody that they work with does. And so you just got to stay away from all of that until you're on the other side. I've been talking about possible institutional relationships um, uh, in academia and policy, policy circles. I've been, t- I've been having some conversations about some writing projects, possibly, and some multimedia projects, possibly all around the same sorts of issues um, that I've tilted into in one form uh, in this job. I don't expect to go away. I, I care about this city, um, and I am as anguished at times Um, as everybody else and um, I've devoted a lifetime to public service and in some fashion I intend to stay in that space.
1: So when we at The Daily Line are combing through campaign finance filings as we do, should we expect to see a Citizens for Joe Ferguson committee pop up at some point?
0: Uh, As in running for office? Yes. No. Um, And I'm going to tell you why specifically. The second I were to do something like that, uh, the question would be raised, was he running that office simply for the purpose of setting himself up for a political run? And when I took this position, that is where the office was. My predecessor, who I admired greatly, I worked with him at the U.S. Attorney's Office, did that. And so for my first three, four, five years, I constantly got the question, are you going to run for office? Um, uh, how should we how should we trust that you're not just doing this to set yourself up politically? It would be incredibly undermining of the mission and the work of the IG's office for me to do that. I think that matters too much. I think oversight matters too much. So I ain't going there. Um, the second thing is, is I, in some respect, look at the city and say, you know what? All the good people that I work with and that I've been fortunate to lead have been identifying ways of fixing problems in a city whose governance paradigm itself is the problem. And I'd actually like to devote some time and attention there. And I've spoken of this recently in public space, and I intend to sort of explore it more, puzzle through it. Chicago is the only of the 10 largest cities in the United States without a charter. A charter is a constitution for a municipality. It is a higher law. Um, That not only sets the structure of government, but the dynamics between the structural components and um, also sets some standards that can't be changed on the whim of sort of political vicissitudes of the moment because you can't change a constitution on the fly. I'm going to give you an example of something that if there was a charter could not have happened. Eddie Johnson's selection as superintendent of the Chicago Police Department came about as a result of the police board at the time, headed by Lori Lightfoot, going through a national search and selection process and serving up to the mayor three finalists for the position. They served up three candidates who were qualified. Um, uh, Mayor Rahm did not like any of them. Um, Rather than go back to tell the police board to go back to the well, which is what the law said, Uh, He got a law passed in the city council that suspended the application of the law that then decided him to just hand, allowed him to just handpick somebody. You had a charter, you can't do that. You'd have to change the constitutional uh, uh, sort of system in order for that sort of thing to happen. I'll give you one other example, and then I'll stop, I'll stop prattling on about this. And we dropped this into for very, with very sort of considered purpose. I'm a lawyer I, you know i teach constitutional law of a sort and i sort of know how justices drop things in for future use in future cases and i might have had that in mind here in the george floyd demonstration report there's a footnote attached to a, the page where we're sort of talking about the structure of government as existed in the executive branch with respect to public safety at the time and in in putting that together i ended up doing something i probably should have done a long time before and it's like you know what I'm going to go to the original source and look at the powers of the mayor. And the very first provision of the powers of the mayor under 2-4 of the Municipal Code says that the mayor, by law, is supposed to nominate a person to the position called administrative officer. And an administrative officer, their their baseline um, um, uh, job duties are described there as being first having qualifications in the form of somebody who's run major government operations in the past. And second, as the person to whom all the department heads report day to day. That's a city manager.
1: This is a position that would be in the, ma- the mayor's office?
0: This is a position that the mayor is supposed to nominate working out of the mayor's office. Nominate, send to the city council for confirmation and approval, uh, but but the idea behind that, which came from um, a Home Rule Commission back in the 1950s, because this was enacted I think in 55 at the time of Martin Kennelly as mayor, uh, is that um, there should be a little bit of separation between um, the political leader and the person who's actually running what is a very, very complex corporate organization, right? This is incredibly complex to run a big city. We, act, we, we elect politicians to do that, the law was put in there to say, well, we should also have a professional um, uh, for that purpose doing the day-to-day operation of the city. We did the research on this. We found no, no no alderman, or almost no alderman was even aware it existed. And the position hasn't been filled since as best as we could tell the time of Jane Byrne. So something that's mandated by law, that is fundamental to a vision of how a city needs to be operated professionally, some not come entirely divorced from, but sort of in a standalone way from the political actor who has very different influences as to how they make the decisions, that hasn't been complied with for 40 years. And so you say, all right, it hasn't been complied with, what do we do about it? Well, there's no recourse for the citizens, if they even knew about it. It would take a city council that had independence and engaged in true oversight of the executive branch to stand up and say, hey, what about this? It's gotta be done. And you think about the dynamics, quite often the city council is left in a position where it's starved of information as well. Well, if there is a city council confirmed position of the person who's actually running the day-to-day affairs of the office who is removable, the city council might itself have a person to go to to get the information that it is starved of that's necessary to actually do its job in a more meaningful way of rendering accountable in a transparent way the workings of the executive branch. That couldn't happen. What's happening now couldn't happen in a system with a charter and a constitution. Can't just ignore the law. And what, what happens in these sort of charter systems is there's what are called sort of private attorneys general. A citizen can file a suit saying, hey, you're not following the constitution. And a court says, hey, you've got to follow the constitution. Right now, laws just get ignored. Laws get suspended based on the whims of the individual who is the political leader. We're unmoored, and so in some fashion, I look at what's going on and look, there's lots of reasons why we're all in the middle of this extraordinary stress test, societally, politically, government, and in terms of our governance, um, all sorts of challenges from the past, if we're talking about the pension and the fiscal crisis, um, and by the way, you know what constituted a balanced budget would be fixed in a way in a charter system in a way that just can't be elided the way that it is from year to year. But in, in some fashion, because of the incredible concentration of power in a single individual, and I'm not familiar with any system that works very well, all based on the decisions of a single individual for very long. Right now, we're sort of going through a period where it's pretty obvious, at least this is what it feels like to me that our government is like a car hurtling down the road on a road that has no guardrails and no lane dividers. We need guardrails, we need lane dividers, we need some form of order, and we need some of that critical tension that comes from the balance of these different components of government, all operating on constitutional standards that operate as a higher law that the whims of the moment of political actors can't just disregard.
1: Joe Ferguson is, by the time you're listening to this, the now former inspector general for the city of Chicago. Thank you so much for coming on the Cloudcast and uh, good luck in whatever comes next.
0: Thanks and same to you.
1: Thanks again to Joe Ferguson for coming on. I need to make a quick clarification here. We briefly talked about an ordinance that passed out of the City Council Public Safety Committee last week that would direct the Chicago Police Board to create a process for people to take their names off the police department's criminal information system. I said that ordinance was presumably being passed out of the City Council during the meeting that was happening simultaneous to our conversation. Turns out that was a false presumption. It did not pass. A group of eight aldermen got together to defer and publish that ordinance. In other words, delay it until the next meeting. They said they want to hear more details about what the new database will look like before they go ahead and create a process to get people off of it. You can go to IGChicago.org to check out the Inspector General's Office's summary report of its investigations from the third quarter, as well as a new report the Office issued on Friday on the failure of the Roseland pumping station from back in May. And be sure to go check out that information portal Ferguson talked about. I, for one, am very excited to dig into that new TIF district portal that he mentioned. This episode of the Clemcast was produced and edited by me, Alex Nitkin. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks.